reading tonight is from Acts chapter 17, so you can follow along the screen, you can listen, or in the Pew Bibles there you have multiple choices. Um, So this is in Athens. Acts chapter 17, verse 16 through to 33. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, We are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made of human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Jeff is going to come up now and preach on this word, and I'd just like to pray for him as he does so. Father, we thank you for this story uh, of Paul and how he boldly proclaimed you, but he also intelligently proclaimed you in front of the people of Athens. We pray that you will just speak through Jeff 
as he explains some of the ideas and encourages us in this word. Amen. Amen. Thank you, David. <clears throat> I have to say this is one of my favourite passages in the all of New Testament, but then probably I say that every week. So, <laughs> but um, uh, there is so much happening here that I think is relevant to to us all living in this new era. Uh, except we are living in an era which is following on from a fairly Christianized society, where there is a whole lot of assumptions and structures that come straight out of uh, a Christian version of society, give or take. Whereas Paul was forging his way in to a secular, well, not a secular society, but a very religious society that had never heard of Christianity. I find this a fascinating period missiologically in terms of missionary ideas, uh, but theologically also to help us understand that as we now move into an era, and I suppose I'm not telling you anything, that there's a cool wind blowing in our culture against the, uh, the gospel and the church and the things we've taken for granted for centuries. Uh, and we're going to learn have, have to learn how to live in that new culture where we can't take things for granted. Um, you know, I think uh, anyone who knows a Christian doctor would uh, see that they're now in a situation in this state which is, for some, uh, ethically untenable, having to refer people uh, against their own conscience to be implicit in, complicit in, in gaining an abortion uh, and whether that goes against their, when that goes against their fundamental beliefs. Or uh, There's a doctor I know who is um, on trial at the moment, or not on trial, he's uh, challenging the loss of his accreditation for simply suggesting that uh, the sex of men and women are distinct things. Who'd have thunk it in our own state? Uh, we are talking on um, Friday night in our, our own Bible study group that um, one of the ladies there is uh, a shaper and mover in chaplaincy in this, this uh, state. And there's a bill before Parliament at the moment which will seek to replace chaplains with psychologists um, or youth workers, even though such things already exist, particularly in the high school system. Uh, now that's a significant I think it's a significant mistake assuming that religion has no relevance to the life of a child. But uh, by the same token, while on the one hand that means a loss of employment for 3,000 people would this bill go through, uh, it also means a loss of contact with Christian people for 300,000 students in this state. This is a new day. And around the world, the church is faced with this in the West as we lose our Christian heritage and lose contact with it. And there seem to be four responses to that. And I see these responses, this is my little survey as I do a Facebook of my friends, that my friends seem to fall into four camps. One is the affirmation camp that would see all of this as of God. And this, is, uh, this wind of change is his doing. God seems to be trapped or have his toga caught in the car door of history. Then there's the accommodation view, which is basically it's no great threat and, and we'll sort of just see what happens and go along with it and eventually unwittingly we'll end up reinforcing that culture. 
And then there's the assertion view that maybe what we should be doing is basically saying, well, you may think that, but we reserve the right to think what we always have. And then there's the abandonment view where people are just withdrawing, tucking their heads under the parapets and saying, well, maybe we just need to be content with small gains and keep our heads inside the church, as one premier of the state once suggested was the proper place. Just deal with religious things and keep your mouths shut. Well, I want to see what Paul would say if he was in a society like ours by reference to this incredible passage. There's an awful lot happening here. And God's little globetrotter Paul, not a very impressive looking fellow, sharp mind, person of no particular honour or status, he'd abandoned his uh, Judaistic titles and ended up on the road and he takes the gospel now to Athens. The previous uh, missionary journey, this is his second missionary journey, previous missionary journey had been to more, um, <clears throat> if you could say, back blocks pagans. Now he comes to the epitome of culture, to Athens, where people read the hard books and they are very much um, uh, proud of the fact that they're the, the uh, standard barriers of high culture. And Paul gets off the boat and at the dock and he doesn't have to move far before he starts to see something that really disturbs him. He sees statues on every corner to another deity here, statues to the seafarers, statues to the stevedores, statues to you name it, there's a religion for it. And uh, this disturbs him that people think that the God of heaven, the God he knows personally, can be fragmented and broken up and represented in that form, but also manipulated through the forms of the images that the statues connote. And this disturbs him, and it's not because he's an oversensitive Jew, but because he knows the one true God, and this is just uh, an insult to the honour of God. And so as soon as he gets his bags unpacked, he does what he normally does. He heads down to the synagogue where debate is quite um, normal and he starts informing his brothers in the faith, the Jews, that their Messiah has actually come. We, we, can look at what he's, we can't, no, no, can't look at what he's saying to the Jews, but we can look at what then he takes down to the local marketplace, the Agora, uh, which is the place of debate. And he starts reasoning and wrestling intellectually with the thought world of his day, the philosophers in that place. Now, when we read it's the Agora or it's the marketplace, it's not like Vic Market. It's not a place where you, you buy and sell your chooks and your capsicums and what have you. It's a marketplace of ideas. A, a modern equivalent would be, this is like going on to Q&A, where there are people being debated and uh, ideas being thrown around and challenged. And that's what he's doing. And there's a couple of groups that are particularly interested in him, the Epicureans and the Stoics, two different brands of Greek philosophy. The Epicureans are more like the Libertines, that freedom is their you know, strongest suit. The Stoics are more pantheistic and passive, that we should be like the gods and be distant and unmoved. That's their sort of view. We get that word Stoicism from that philosophy. And uh, Paul starts basically taking them on. And people come and they say to, say to him, this guy's actually a babbler, he's, he's going on with rubbish. 
And they misunderstand what he's saying and they think that he's speaking about two new deities, Jesus and the resurrection, Anastasis. They mishear, they just you know, don't quite get the message. And so then we read these words in verse 19, important words for the whole evening that we have ahead. Uh, not that I intend to keep you here for the whole. Um, <clears throat> and they took him, it says. That is a statement that reveals a lot. It's not a nice invitation. It's actually an arrest. And Paul is brought before this place uh, for an arraignment hearing to hear whether he is actually stepping outside the bounds of what is legal. This is a necessary part of Greek uh, philosophical thinking. In Greek philosophical thinking, there isn't a division between religion and philosophy. We sort of fit in with the gods, it's all connected. And in, in this state, you needed a permit if you're going to start a new religion. You needed to get permission from the religion uh, group that ran religion, the part of the, that part of the bureaucracy. Uh, it's, uh, this is the same place that arraigned Socrates in the year, the great origin of Greek philosophy in, in the uh, year 399. Interestingly, he was tried and then was given the option of suicide for introducing foreign deities. You can see why they've taken Paul to this place. This is a precarious predicament, a challenging moment. It's intended to shock and intimidate and he can get off scot-free if, and he can pump his religion, if he can supply four bits of data, according to Greek law. That is, he's got to be able to tell about a vision, where he met this God. It's got to be a, a plausible theophany, a manifestation of God. He's also got to have the wherewithal to build a temple, where, he's, where he has to have a place already set and be able to uh, design that temple. And in that temple, they need to have feasts, thirdly, and he needs to be able to prove that he can actually supplement the dietary requirements of the deity. And then, of course, he needs to be able to supply an image of the deity. needs a diagram, at least, and totem image, if not that. That speaks of his diet, of the uh, God that he is supposedly introducing as a new and foreign deity. Now that's a crucial fork in the road in the history of the church, I'd have you believe. Because Paul, right then and there, can save his skin, can gain approval, if only he's got the money, and I doubt that he did, but he at least can go and try and raise it. He's got the crucial offer of choice here of taking that offer, saving his neck, and then the church would end up, we would end up in the catalogue of religions. In the parliament of religions, we'd have a seat and all would be forgiven. But then I doubt that we would be sitting here tonight if Paul had taken that option. Can you name... Any, even the top five first century Greek religions. I'm waiting. 
but you can name the name of Christ, as can the whole world. Here is the crucial choice as a fork in the road for the history of the church. This makes this passage pretty important. Important for us as we now face a similar fork in the road. Well, Paul assembles his argument. He begins courteously as his uh, proper rhetoric. And he points out that, he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. Now, he's going to flip the coin here. That's That's a virtue so far. For as I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship, and particularly I came across a very interesting altar, an altar to the unknown God. You see, by their own admission, he can drive a little wedge in there. They admit that they might not have the whole pantheon yet. That they may be in ignorance at some point and not have perfect knowledge of the divine world. That's all he needed. And he goes with that. And he says, you know, what you proclaim as unknown, I actually know. <laughs> you sense his audacity. He is not missing a heartbeat at this point. They place a high value on worship, but a low value on content. Paul puts it around a different way. And he begins in verse 24 by firstly pointing out the foolishness of the terms of trade. He refuses to take up any of those terms of trade. He begins with the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by man. Who, on a, their, in their right mind, thought that the infinite could be confined within a temple? And yet you go most around most first world countries today and there are sacred sites everywhere which purport to have a deity within them. Paul saying, there will be no dormitory. Verse 25, he says, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives life and breath to everything. I mean, this one is infinite. You cannot give life and breath to the whole human race. You cannot be God in any meaningful sense of the word and then need to supplement your vitamins, your diet. There's not going to be any dinner. Paul is saying. And then he comes out with this particularly pointed comment just in passing in verse 26. Because the Athenians prided themselves on a mythological description of their own origin. They thought they came directly from Zeus and uh, some sort of There's a whole lot of theories floating out there about the origins of Athens. But they thought that they were a cut above the rest of the human world. Qualitatively, they were superior, and so hence was their thought life. Their thought life was their religious life, because it's through the cognitive life that you end up being mystically connected to the upper story. That's mysticism. It comes from the pagans. This God made... Now, this is unfortunately one of the worst translations, or worst poorly translated sections of Scripture in your New Testament. And... Translators who translated the NIV and the ESV had to take a stab at what Paul was getting at and I think they missed because they didn't observe a fundamental law of Greek verbs, which I'll explain to you. I know this is why you've come out tonight, to learn the fundamental laws of Greek verbs. But um, he says, 
He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. And then the next half of that verse is actually just a parenthesis. He also determined the allotted periods and the times around which they'd live. And the NIV adds some words there which aren't in the text. God did this so that they would. Those words aren't in the text. It's like they are trying to join that phrase onto the next verse when actually the words are simply to seek him, to seek him. So I read that again. He made man, and I'll leave out the parentheses, he made man from one man, every nation of mankind, to live on all the face of the earth to seek God. That's what Paul is saying, full stop. The whole purpose, what a human being is, is a worshipper. Like we we have many ideas of identity and identity politics to go along with it today, where people are defining themselves by all sorts of things, their trade, their custom, their sexuality, their race, whatever it takes. But the fundamental that unites all human beings is that God knows that he made us to worship him. That's why we're here. Why you're here tonight is because you are doing the most understandable, the most natural thing that goes with your nature. You're made to worship. An atheist, a person who refuses to even countenance the question of their identity, is a person who is doing something unnatural. It's going against the grain of how they're made. They they can postpone the question, but to do that is actually to defraud themselves of the core of their identity. You know, we, we do this worship not because Baptists like singing. We do this because it's natural to us to do this. We're just falling in line with what God did. The rest of that verse, the parentheses, he determined a lot of periods and he determined boundaries. I wonder whether he's actually having a little reference on the side there to the Tower of Babel, where God had to distribute the languages and the boundaries. Uh, and why did God do that at the Tower of Babel, looking back pre-Abraham? He did that because of the arrogance of humanity. <laughs> That as they started organising themselves, they would think that they were going to make a Reich, an empire, and make a name for themselves. Sounds like the Athenians, doesn't it? In other words, the Athenians are just as sinful as the first generation. Nothing's changed. That's what Paul's pitching at. And he says, he made you from one man to seek God. And the next part of the sentence is actually a new sentence in the Greek where Paul actually says, effectively, but you guys are groping around the walls in the dark. That's effectively what he's saying. He may be having a bit of a slap at Plato there who had a theory of reality that we don't know anything. We're just grasping at shadows of reality in the walls of a cave. And and Paul is saying, yeah, that is not how humans were meant to live. We weren't meant to speculate about God. We weren't meant to theorize about God. We weren't meant to make up our own ideas about God because he is not far from each of us, he says in the rest of that verse. This God 
was there all the way along. All this incredible industry of philosophy and religious theory was never meant to be part of the human curriculum. Because God was there all along. If only we turned around, we would have seen him. And then he says, and he quotes two of their poets, because poets were philosophers. Philosophers wrote stories to get across their truths. And, and he, he points out that they haven't been listening to their own authorities on this, quoting firstly from one called Epimenides. For in him we live and move and have our being. That's a very good description of what we call the Christian doctrine of God's, I've got to get it right, the right one, omnipresence. You see, you know, it reminds me of Kay and I the other day. We were up in Darwin. Kay's brother is a science teacher. They've had a donation of a couple of incredibly powerful electric telescopes. I can't know what you call them. They're telescopes, aren't they? And uh, we, we were out there on this footy oval, the night, no, not a cloud in Darwin, and you can see for miles and some. Miles are a measure of a unit of distance, right? <laughs> and and uh, we, we were looking at things through that telescope which have ceased to exist thousands of years ago already. We're looking at, at light sources and stars and galaxies. I can't remember the name of them, but I was stunned as we were looking at things that are incalculable distance away. And now we have telescopes set out in the space that can see even further. And, and you know... That immensity just made everyone on that oval quiet. We came to sense a sense of awe, even though some could not express that religiously. I found myself worshipping because I worship the God who is the brackets outside that. And you see, on the doctrine of omnipresence is really saying there is no space There are no dimensions apart from God's bidding. He wills it to be so, that there be space. Omnipresence is saying God is not just everywhere, but everywhere is something he has done and sustains by the word of his power. It's a thrilling thing to be a Christian and worship that size of God rather than one of these little plastic deities on the dashboard of the Greek heart. That's a different dimension altogether. You can't compare the two. But that's the nature of Paul's God. And so I'm taking you slowly through this text, but there's so much profound stuff here. And then he says, For we indeed are his offspring, which is quoting another poet at the end of that verse. Um, Aretas is the poet. Not one I've heard of, not one I've read. But um, you see... Paul is saying, you see the irony here? We come from his bidding, not the other way around. These Greeks are furiously creating an industry, a God-making business, when God is in the man-making business. We've currently got the, the cart before the horse, Paul is saying. We flow from him. We are the image of God. And that's why he goes on to say in the very next verse, verse 29, being therefore God's offspring, we shouldn't think of the divine being as like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. What a stupid enterprise, thinking that we can represent God 
when we owe everything to him, even our imagination. You see where Paul has come. He's basically said, there's not going to be a dorm. I'm not going to supply any diet. And I'm not going to supply any description. There's going to be no diagram of this God. To do so would be to mock God. It would be to be out of sync with the very nature of the being we're talking about. And he's not going to honour that at all. Isn't it interesting? Remember the four? What was the fourth one that he was meant to do? It was actually the first. He's actually meant to supply a description of a theophany. How did he meet this God? What was his vision? What was his experience? And he doesn't do that. And I would have thought he could have, because this is the Paul who met the Lord of heaven when his persecuting Christians on the road to Damascus was knocked off his horse by that blinding light who introduced himself as the Jesus that he was persecuting. Surely that would have been a clincher argument. He could have talked about the, the nobleman's servant that he rendered blind in Crete. Or he could have talked about the lame man that he, he raised at Lystra that caused a stir there. But he doesn't bring out any of that. What does he bring out? See, if Paul went down that route of talking about his own experience, his own subjective experience, it would have legitimised the exercise of getting the permit through providing the data. And he wasn't about to legitimise this stunt this arrogant stunt of these Greek philosophical minds for one moment. That's the clarity that Paul had. And instead, he now turns the tables. Verse 30 and 31 are two of the most uh, important passages, uh, verses in our New Testament. So much here. He says, The times of ignorance God has overlooked. He's, you've been living in an amnesty, folks. He's saying. But now, in light of what has recently happened in human history, Jesus Christ, his crucifixion and resurrection, he now commands all people everywhere to repent, and that includes the elites in Athens. He commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because one, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. God has a calendar which determines the meaning of all history. You know, it's this statement and it's the beliefs that follow from this that revolutionise the very philosophy of history in the Western world. The Greeks, they believed, you know, that was months and years, I'm not saying that, but they had no the theology of history. History was just cyclical. It was meaningless. The gods knew the formula. They knew the meaning of history. But we don't. We just, we live, we die. Huh. Same things. Same, same, different. But this, this point says history has a terminus. And we are going towards it. And every day that meter is ticking and we're getting closer. And that's true for all of us here tonight. All of us are going to face this God the God of the universe, the God of the brackets. And we're told here he's appointed a man to judge the world in righteousness. I find that fascinating. 
You see, this God we worship is not just powerful, he's good. A number of times, Lauren starts a worship by reminding us of the good, good Father. That's good. We don't just worship a God who is big. We worship a God who deals rightly or justly. He never compromises on his goodness. And unfortunately, that's bad news for us. Because we're going to be measured by the goodness of Jesus Christ. You know, I'd have more chance if it was the goodness of Mother Teresa or maybe James Hurd. But <laughs> no, that's not the standard. The standard is going to be the standard of Jesus Christ. If you feel comfortable against that standard, you can relax. But none of the rest of us can. He's going to judge the world by that standard, by a man whom he has appointed. And then comes the clincher. And he had to come up with this at some time. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. While all you Greeks, he's saying, have been involved in this incredible industry of hair-splitting philosophy and rhetoric and writing the books and the, the poems and theorizing and, and debating and pulling each other apart at the seams intellectually. God has stepped into history and he's run his hand right across the grain. And he's made an, a, an action statement in history in the form of the resurrection. He's saying to you today, if you think I'm kidding, there's a man who has been risen from the dead. He was dead and he's alive. And he's the same man that's going to be sitting on the judge's seat. With gavel in hand, that day we meet him. That day is coming. That meter is ticking. And God has given this as an assurance. If you are in any, any doubt that he doesn't mean business, look no further. You know, I'm amazed at the number of people that say, well, Jeff, that's all very well. You know, you, you Christians like your Christian bit, etc. But then you've got all these other religions, etc. And the point we must make is that no other religion ever speaks of a man who has conquered the one universal we all face, which is death. This God has defeated the great enemy. He must be the great God. That's Paul's point. It takes an infinite God. It takes a just God to raise a just man from the grave. And God has done this. Now, we often speak of the resurrection as some sort of pastoral aid. It is. It's pastorally comforting if you know this man the right way. It's pastorally comforting if you're, you're at the point of death or you have a relative who's dying to be able to assure them that if they are in Christ, if they are in Christ, there is nothing to fear from death. That's pastorally comforting, but that's not the way Paul uses that here. Paul is pointing out that the resurrection also is a summons. It's an assurance. It's a contradiction to all pride. It's a demand that men listen and it's his last word. That's the last word the human race is going to get until Jesus comes again. Do you realise that? God doesn't need to make this statement again. If the God of glory has descended, taken our sins, suffered our sorts of death on our behalf and God has risen this one from the dead, what need he say more? 
And Paul knows that that is his job, to be the ambassador for that message. Isn't it fascinating, right at that point, we then read about the response. Some, some of them, they're rusted onto their assumptions. For the Greek, the idea of God, the heavenly spirit, raising a material bodily being was abhorrent. The whole purpose of mysticism, the whole purpose of philosophy was to elevate yourself away from the bodily life and to say that God is going to resurrect, has resurrected a man was absolutely nonsense. But that was their assumption. They don't know it. They're just rusted onto it. And many people cannot move towards Christ because they don't realise that they're single loop learners. They're just stuck on assumptions that don't stack up. But some we read were open-minded and they said, hmm, I've got to hear more about this. They, they could see that there's an internal consistency in all he is saying. It hangs together and they, they think, that resurrection thing demands further inquiry. And so that's a mature response and some had their assumptions revised. Each of us in this room tonight fall into one of those three groups. Either our assumptions are rusted on and the only response you can have is to mock the whole Christian story. It falls over if God has not spoken in Jesus Christ and his resurrection. But some of you are revisiting your assumptions as the word of God brings newness and light to bear and you can see the consistency of the story. And some of you obviously have joined in this. I've got to ask the question tonight. You see, amazing thing has happened in this story. Where did we begin? We began with a guy being arraigned in a court and asked to justify his behaviour. He was in a predicament. Where has the story end? It ended where Paul puts the Greeks on trial for religious arrogance. And he tells them the, the news they need to know that God is going to hold them to account for what they do with what he is saying right then and there. Isn't that astonishing? And I think that the reason why some people joined and some people became open-minded and revisionist in their approach was simply because not just the message, but the messenger, his manner matched the message. And folks, I think if this world that we live in and your society that you'll live in for the rest of your life are going to take Christ seriously, we must be consistent with the message. We must be assertive, not apologetic. We must stand our ground, not accommodate the whims of change. Culture will change again. And that's what Paul did. And he has said to us in his own book later on, that amazing charge, that we too, you and I, are ambassadors for Christ. God makes his appeal 
through us. God's methods have not changed since Athens. God's methods are for schmucks like us to confront the world with the news that Jesus has risen from the dead. Death has been conquered and with that sin. And God doesn't need to speak again. We do not need to impress the world with the power of our logic, with the power of our testimonies. We do need to tell the world what they need to hear, that Jesus is Lord. Folks, I uh, will finish at this point. But I want to tell you one little story which I told folks, and I think I've told some of you here before, so I apologise if you've heard it. But um, I once ran into a guy just like this Apostle Paul in China. And uh, I had the great pleasure of meeting him uh, years ago. And it was an honour because his witness far outstripped mine. I felt like I'd stepped back into Athens when I met this young man, late 20s, who, having bought himself a Bible out of curiosity had begun with parched, secular soul, a socialist soul, a materialistic message that had dried his spirit. He'd begun to wonder whether there was something somewhere else that could feed that spirit. And he bought a Bible and read it and accepted the message. And then he shared that message with his friends and family He became a pastor. He didn't know what a church was, apart from what he read in Scripture. And he became a pastor of, after a few years, a church of 80 believers in this southern city. Now, I met him just after he'd got out of prison. He'd been in prison for 28 days. And uh, we're actually having this conversation uh, under the guise of a wedding, in a wedding reception centre. And um, there's a lot of noise around. And uh, he had the most perfect Durham Cathedral English, uh, but he couldn't understand a word I said. We needed a translator to him to understand my strine. And, uh, and, and we, we were, I was fascinated by his story. And he told me, I said, what was it like uh, living in this culture, you know, when it's pretty hostile to what you believe? And he told me the story that their little church of 80 continually went to the Department of Religious Affairs to get registered and were continually knocked back. But they still met. They met in basements. They met in warehouses. They met in in a legal office on a weekend and this sort of thing. And every time they'd get going, the authorities would come along and say, where's your permit? Ring a bell. And they'd be shoved on. There'd be fines and this sort of thing. Finally, the only place that they could worship was in... uh, downtown in the the garden uh, called the People's People's Park and uh, finally the police arrived one day and arrested him assuming that you know you you kill the head the whole body will die and they took him away and interrogated him and brought him to court and they were determined that he would not rise again and so They threw every charge they could find. It got ridiculous, the number of charges. He was charged with parking offences, 
with not having a registered washing machine. You couldn't believe the rubbish that they, they put. They just wanted to stack him under a pile of legal eagles. And then it got through to that point of the trial and they said to this guy, uh, okay, well, you've been found guilty and the, the charge for unlawful assembly was, uh, was seven years, first offence. He's expecting seven years. The judge says, before I hand down uh, the verdict, have you got anything to say? It's good to see justice has served, isn't it? And he said to them, you know, you've charged me with all these things, but you've missed the most serious thing. If you really knew what I was preaching, (laughs) oh my goodness. And he used the next 20 minutes to outline the fact that everyone in this court would one day face the Supreme Court of Heaven. And the Jesus that he preached would be their judge. That takes a bit of guts. Where did that come from? It came from not the fact that he had a powerful subjective experience, but he absolutely was convinced of the objective reality of the risen Jesus. And that's why he was so courageous. That's where we gain our strength from going forward, that we worship God, who regardless of what the decisions of the elites make, he will still be Lord, the meter is still ticking. We folks have got to play for the long game. It's interesting in the verse David didn't read, it tells us two of these people were Damaris and Dionysius fascinating there there are the starting block of that group of people who get called the eastern orthodox church last time i looked it's still going strong folks if you want to be in the strong game you've got to be in the long game and that means thinking hard about what the gospel is and i leave that with you as we uh, part company for a moment. But I do want to say that in this group sitting here tonight and the people I've met and spent time in conversation, I am convinced that you can be world-changing people if you trust this Christ and this gospel. You know, there's some marvellous people gone out from this church through its history. Have you ever read the honour board out there? Some of those people were legends when I was a kid. But when we redo this church, I hope we put that on a board up and I hope we put up a new one because there's going to be more names to go on that board. Any row, any flank in this church could change another church, could change another town, could change another society. If we're convinced of this one God. And I am convinced that if this God knows how to raise this Christ from a dark tomb and take him to glory, then I think he can be trusted to take this church into the future. Amen.